You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. All right, folks, part three in the uh, Dynamics of Criticism three-peat series or whatever you call it. Yeah. Anyway, after this episode, we'll go back to guests next week. And we've got some great ones coming up. I'm really excited to hear from Rich Stearns, the former president of World Vision. He's on the docket coming up and a few other guests as we uh, boy get closer to summer. But this is part three of the uh, Dynamics of Criticism podcast episodes. So you can catch part one and two just in the episodes right underneath. We started with the internal critics, then we looked at the external critics, and we want to finish with three dynamics of criticism. These are pretty straightforward, so this will be a really brief episode. Here are the three. Secondhand criticism, same meeting, different experience criticism, and cumulative criticism. Secondhand criticism, same meeting, different experience criticism, and cumulative criticism. Let's first talk about secondhand criticism. Secondhand criticism is the impact that criticism targeted to you has on your spouse. So I'm particularly talking to married couples. If you're the leader and your husband or your wife hears about the criticism that you're facing, they are impacted. And there's two different ways they're impacted. One is they just feel defensive for you so particularly if you're in a church where, you know, church is both organization, it's community, it's also got like shades of family, all these different dynamics going on in the church. So if somebody criticizes you, then your spouse gets impacted by that because they see that person the next time you're at church. But here's the problem. Because your spouse wasn't in the boxing ring with the criticism, they don't get to fight directly. It's secondhand. It's like a phantom. And so it gets really difficult for your spouse because they're impacted by the criticism, but they don't get to tackle it head on themselves. I know I I had to learn the hard way uh, with my wife in the very early days. I would come home and talk about some criticism I'd gotten and how hurt I was and maybe how nasty someone had been. And then my wife would feel it. And then maybe later that week, I would resolve with that person, but I'd never circle back and, and come back around with my wife and say, hey, I want you to know we resolved this. It's okay. And so she was often like jerked around by the roller coaster I was on because I wasn't mindful of the impact on her. I, I just want to know, I just want to speak to pastor's wives or pastor's husbands before we go on. It is one of the loneliest situations when you're the spouse of a pastor because you hold so much. So often the pastor comes home and visits with you at the end of the day and you are, in in a lot of ways, if you're the spouse of a pastor, in so many ways you're the pastor's pastor, right? But when criticism is involved, it impacts you. So I don't really have a, a great solution or set of tools to get you out of it. I just am wanting to let you know that This is something you have to be aware of as a leader and your spouse, whether it's your husband or your wife, they need to get, they need a place where they can vent. They need a safe place because when they're not in the boxing ring with you, they're impacted by the blows, by the punches, even though they don't get to fight back. It's a, it's a unique dynamic. It's a difficult dynamic. It's definitely a dynamic in criticism. The second 
uh, dynamic is same meeting, different experience. Same meeting, different experience. You can be in the same meeting with a group of people, but you can each have, the, have an altogether different experience of that meeting depending on who is on the hot seat of criticism. I, I learned this later in my leadership. In the early days, <laughs> we were a small organization and if people were grumpy with me, I was always the one in the hot seat. So I was the one who was used to taking the arrows, right? So maybe there'd be an elder in the meeting with me and I'm taking all the shots. And that was the predominant critical meeting I was in. It was very rare in the early days that I was the one mediating where someone else is on the hot seat taking the arrows. But then several years later, I remember being actually in a meeting with one of my usual suspect critics. And I had a couple of elders in the room as well. And boy, it was a tough meeting. This person was getting really personal, really cutting into my identity as a leader. And I was bleeding out. I was hurting pretty bad. And at the end of it, the usual suspect left and one of the elders turned to me and said, good meeting, good meeting. And I'm like, wow, if, that, if you think that was a good meeting, that really hurt. And about that same time, this is several years ago now, I was mediating a meeting between one of my key leaders and a usual suspect critic of his. And I watched my key leader taking the arrows, but because I was so used to being the one taking the arrows, I wasn't attuned to the damage being done. This is why I call it the same meeting, different experience. You can be in the same room, have the same agenda, same meeting, but have an altogether different experience. So this, this dynamic of criticism is really for those of you who are in a mediation role, part of your job isn't just the agenda, it's also to pay attention to where the arrows are flying and notice when they're hitting their target and somebody's bleeding out. And your job is to keep people safe and to step in and help uh, keep the, the damage to a minimum. Same meeting, different experience. The final source of criticism, also known as 2020, is cumulative criticism. I have found it very helpful as a leader to simply name when I am in a season of cumulative criticism, when I've just taken an onslaught. Now, sometimes I know it's coming. So for example, anytime I have led a capital campaign for a fundraising, particularly for a capital project in our church, in my 15 years at our church, I have led four capital campaigns in 15 years. Oh man, I'll just share a quick story. I, I remember when I was interviewing at Discovery. Actually, no, I'd had the job, but we hadn't moved here yet. So Discovery had offered me the job, but I was still in Las Vegas finishing up. And I flew into Colorado to look for a place for us, for our family. And while I was here, uh, one of the elders, Tom, took me to an architect meeting because uh, we were a portable church at that point. We had 150 people. We met in an elementary school, but the church owned land. They'd actually had a million dollars of debt on 18 acres of property. So Tom takes me to this architect meeting and I, I remember it was my first ever meeting, even before I moved here permanently as the pastor. And I'm sitting in the meeting feeling pretty overwhelmed by just the task in front of us to going from being dirt owners to building owners, which by the way, guys, I, I should do an episode just on that. Where leading a church from being in debt for dirt to owning a building, one of the most challenging, gut-wrenching and exhilarating experiences of my leadership ever. It, it's so hard. So there we are in the architect meeting, this is 2005, and the architect's talking about all the fundraising we're going to have to do to get into the building. And I made some comment, you know, I was young and naive, I'd never been a lead pastor before. And I said, well, I, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm not going to keep asking people for money. 
And this old architect, he'd been, you know, he'd done church architecture for like 25 years. He'd been around the block. He just looked at me and he said, look, you have to get your mind around the fact that at this stage of your church, your church is so young and unestablished. You have to get your mind around the fact that you're in for 25 years of nothing but fundraising. And <laughs> I'll say 16 years in, yeah, he, he was right. He was right. Anyway, cumulative criticism. I know that if we're going to do a capital campaign, I'm going to go in a season of cumulative criticism. And I get it. We're asking people to sacrifice money. And so, you know, people's money is such a personal thing that they're very personally invested. And so they're just opinions are heightened on building design or the progress or the pace or whether we can accomplish what we hoped we would. So I, I know that. But but then other times there's season of criticism that just totally take you off guard. And I think for many of us, that was 2020, you know, I don't think most of us going into February of 2020 or March of 2020 realized what an onslaught of criticism 2020 would be. So just a question, Lita, how long has a season of criticism been for you right now? Is it weeks? Has it been months? I was coaching a leader who is a young leader, moved into a traditional church that wanted to make changes after being traditional for a long time. And uh, I asked him this question and he said, well, if, if you're talking about a season of cumulative, nonstop, consistent criticism, he said, five years, five years. Cumulative criticism is, is like sandpaper on your soul. It just slowly grinds you down. And what you need to do once you've named it and once you've established the time frame, is you need to do two things. The first one is you need to tell somebody who cares. Hopefully, people in your church, tell somebody who cares to say, hey, I have been in an unrelenting season of criticism for seven months and I'm not doing well. Like criticism can form a, a, a form of PTSD. The second thing you can do is take a hard look at, am I perpetuating it? Are there things that I'm doing that are perpetuating criticism? You know, in the last episode, we, we spent almost all the time on the usual suspect critic. I just want to circle back with a couple of things because one of the most powerful things that I learned is I can't stop somebody criticizing me. You know, remember last episode we talked about the four spaces, the space in me, the space between me and another, the space inside the other, then the space between others. Now that third space, the space inside the other, that's where so much of our anxiety lies because we try to change the way other people think and behave, but we can't do it. So those usual suspect critics I talked about in last episode, a lot of your anxiety is cognitive dissonance. You're simply trying to worry your way around to their way of thinking. You're trying to sacrifice yourself so that they'll see it your way. A couple of quick gut checks. If you're in a season of cumulative criticism, number one, are the people I'm anxious about, are they moving toward me? Do they even respect me? Do, do they care what I think? Do they care about my motive and my heart? And in the last episode, I shared like a tool around vulnerability as a way to really figure that out. Is the person I'm anxious about moving toward me? And secondly, am I over-functioning while they're under-functioning? I'm not proud of this, but in my early uh, couple of years of leading discovery, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty strong personality. I'm a, I'm a tall, deep-voiced white guy. I, I have a lot of power. I was actually really worried that I would be too domineering as a leader. So I was really trying to collaborate with anybody. And what that did 
was it, yes, it, it attracted great collaborators and also it attracted usual suspects who think they know better even though they're not doing it and don't know how to do it, right? So I had this posture of open collaboration. I was kind of sending this subliminal uh, subconscious message that I would like to hear your idea, even if you've never thought it through very hard. And I just sat through so many meetings of half-baked ideas from people who, you know the type, guys, they just, they couldn't lead a church out of a paper bag, these people. I, re- I remember I'd, I'd met with one of my usual suspects so many times and we never got anywhere. And I just, I'm not proud of this, but I finally said to him, I'm like, look, if you led this church, three people would be at this church. Like you drive people away. You're so arrogant. You're so self-righteous. Anyway, I'm digressing. But what I had to learn in that cumulative season of criticism, for me at least, was that I was complicit in it. I was attracting these kinds of critics. My body language, my posture, the things I said, I was sending the message, I want to hear your half-baked idea. And then when I get hurt or frustrated, I would try to give these people insight but they weren't actually invested at all. They didn't care. They didn't have the weight of ministry on their shoulders. And so this uh, affords me the my favorite ever family systems quote by Ed Friedman. The colossal misunderstanding of our time is that insight works with someone who is unmotivated to change. The colossal misunderstanding of our time is that insight works with somebody who is unmotivated to change. So cumulative criticism, first of all, tell somebody, well, first of all, figure out how long has the season been. Secondly, tell somebody who cares about you. Thirdly, take a hard look and get some coaching on what you might be doing that is perpetuating the accumulation of criticism. Are you letting people roll you over? Are you leading change at a pace that the people can't stand? Are you carrying all the, are you over-functioning? You're carrying all the weight of responsibility of ministry and they're not carrying any. Therefore, they have cheap shot ideas because they don't know how hard it is. Sometimes there the solution is to actually put the burden of ministry on their shoulders and let them take a shot at it. That'll, by the way, that'll help you determine really quick if someone's in the helpful feedback category or the usual suspect. And finally, and I think most importantly, is really work harder and put more time and more money into soul care, into life-giving habits, cultivating life-giving habits. So many faith leaders I know, you know, guys, you know that I'm, I'm now coaching tons of faith leaders. I'm, I'm doing workshops for different businesses and faith-based organizations and churches. And so so now I'm, I'm up to thousands of people that I've simply asked this question, what people places and activities make you feel human and alive, right? I asked that on the podcast too of my guests. So many answers. But listen, folks, so far in my surveys, you know, most people can name a number of things, but, but, but like 10% or less of the people I talk to actually calendar it, actually intentionally practice life-giving habits as a matter of course. And if you're in a season of cumulative criticism, This is a time to make sure you have friends outside your organization who care about you that you can vent to. Make sure you're pouring into life-giving activities, life-giving places, and make a habit of it. You guys know that I I am a big proponent of the life-giving list. And right now I have 87 items on my life-giving list. How many on your list? 
I don't mean to make this competitive, but 87 items, that means, I mean, some of them are like grandiose, like uh, one of the things on my life-giving list is chanting with the Benedictine nuns up near the Wyoming border at St. Wahlberger's. Uh, They chant Gregorian seven times a day. And sometimes I'll go there on a silent retreat. Well, that takes some planning. That's like three days, four days. Assisi, Italy is on my list. I've been there one time. I don't know if I'll ever get back, but it's on the list. But when you've got 87 items, there's so many things that you can do to really feed your soul, to really connect to the God that loves you. And so once you've figured out how long the season is, told someone that you love, uh, looked at your own complicity at what you might be doing that's perpetuating it, then the final step is to really take tremendous care of yourself. Let God love you. Remember that all God expects out of you is a human-sized leader. God does not need you to be anything more than human-sized. And if that's a struggle to believe, maybe you go back and listen to episode one where we talked about the inner critic and these ideas that we have to be perfect and we have to always love correctly and we have to know the right answer, that these are actually the attributes of God and our inner critic in many ways is trying to make us like God. Okay, so that's the three kind of series trilogy, I guess, on the dynamics of criticism. I said it in the other two episodes, but if you want to really dig deeper into this, if if, if this stuff's resonating with you, uh, let me just let you know, guys, that listening to it or reading about it will not bring you to change. You have to embody it. You have to practice it. And that's really why I launched Capable Life this year. Capable Life has all the managing leadership anxiety tools I wrote about in MLA, but it also has new tools that I've been developing since that book came out. And best of all, it's an, it's an online safe community. If you need friends, if you need people to talk to, I've got pastors, medical professionals, business leaders, missionaries from all over the world on Capable Life on a confidential discussion forum where it's password protected, where people are bearing their souls and helping each other. I'm offering monthly Zooms where you and these people can get on a Zoom with a coach and you can actually flip the power dynamic to go from being an anxiety's grip to managing anxiety. So that's www.capablelife.me. It starts at $28 for one month's access. If you want to do a year's access, you can pay $280 to save some money. But I'd encourage you guys, don't think that this year is going to be different if you don't do something different and you can do something different. All right, join us next week. We'll be back with our guests. Hope you have a great week. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org.